Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. Almost halfway through the year, people have summer holiday and summer plans on their mind. But as always, business doesn't sleep. Uh, busy week in Dubai and across the region. I was down in Egypt in our Augustus Mus office uh, with, I attended the People of Now Awards, the EEA, Egypt Entrepreneur Awards. And it was great to see uh, such variety in business leaders down there. Uh, there was awards and categories of entrepreneurship for companies that have been around for a long time, startups, applications, uh, cross sectors, hospitality, schools, education and sports. So it was great to see one of the themes was that, you know, when the economy is suffering and the currency uh, issues that they're having, uh, that uh, people still want to uh, create Egyptian success stories. And that was great to see. And I think every country needs a bit of that as well. Uh, but also, thank you to all our regular listeners. I want to give a shout out to a few people who uh, messaged during the week saying that they found particular, they're researching companies and they found episodes in the past. We've been going since 2019, over 220 episodes. Uh, Dana listened to the Drink Dry store and found that good. Uh, Mahmoud, who's building his own uh, pet with it online store, he listened to the Party Camel uh, last week's episode and he found that really useful. He said that the questions I asked were similar to the ones that they were thinking about. And I think that's kind of the theme and the tone of the show uh, that we do try and get to the bottom uh, of the business stories. Uh, but this week is fascinating interview. It's a little bit uh, away from the regular direction, but I think business people will find it really useful uh, in terms of education and jobs, but also philanthropy and uh, how high net worth individuals can give back as well. So enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Dubai Works Business Podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Sonia Ben-Jafar, who is the CEO of the Abdullah al Ghurair Foundation. The foundation works actively in the United Arab Emirates and beyond to train, educate, and upskill Emirati and Arab youth to prepare them for future workforce challenges. Uh, good morning, Dr. Sonia. Good morning. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much for having us, Richard. Nice to meet you in person. So uh, tell us a little bit more about the foundation. Sure. So the foundation was created in 2015. Um, Abdullah al Hurair, who is a well-known business leader, uh, had been giving for decades, I wouldn't say years, for decades, very quietly in the, in the traditions. And um, at a certain point, he just wanted to give bigger and um, he had a very big discussion, I suppose, with his family. And to give bigger and to give broader, you needed to go public, right? You had to become systematized because the demands were so high, especially in the region, which is where we focus on. And so in 2015, he launched a foundation. Um, and since then, we have been able to reach uh, roughly 92,000 beneficiaries. We like to call them participants, but the lingo in the, in the industry is beneficiaries. And the idea is um, these young people between the ages of 15 and 35 
who need a boost of some kind, so they're underserved. And so the idea is it's not education for education's sake, it's education so that they can get to the next level of their lives or get onto a pathway of opportunities that actually brings them to rise higher, rather it be for just themselves, their families, their communities, but really get into that um, opportunity of either work in terms of a job, a better job, a job of the future, or in terms of actually um, starting their own jobs in terms of doing entrepreneurship pieces. So our kind of mantra is uh, education for better opportunities. That's amazing. Well done. It's a great initiative. Uh, how does it technically work? How do you implement this initiative? So sure. So when we started out, um, the very, very first launch in 2016 were scholarships for young Arabs who um, were really um, high merit, but also high needs across the entire region. And we have roughly 1,200 students who are either in that program or graduated from that program. In 2020, because it was uh, the five-year mark, we revisited all of the data and recognized that although that is an incredibly impactful program for those young people, we also um, were not serving thousands of, of young people that perhaps we could do better for more. And so we revisited and we changed our strategy to be working rather than with individuals, with institutions, to really lower the barriers. And so we started working with universities. Uh, for example, American University of Beirut is a big partner of ours, and we've been working very closely with them to take one of um, their programs, which is really, really well known, which is their engineering program. And how do you take that and lower the barriers of access by providing it online across the region. Um, and then taking those learnings and bringing them into the UAE, where we have a consortium of nine universities in country working with the government as well, with the Ministry of Education, and taking the learnings and saying, okay, let's lower the barriers and provide greater access to qu high quality online education. And so that has gone extremely well. And at this point, we have been able to have over 8,000 beneficiaries or participants. They're young students who actually got to have that opportunity of education, of a, this high quality higher education in particular, which they may not have had because maybe they're in an area where they can't travel or there's a lot of different constraints. Um, and so this has really opened up the doors. Amazing, so do you normally work with established education institutions? We try to work with um, institutions who have a proof of concept. So our idea is that we're not here to reinvent a wheel. We're here to find the pockets of real success and say, hey, you're doing a great job. Let's see if we can actually help you scale that and reach people who may not be able to benefit from you in general. So for example, right now, we're our big partner in terms of a digital upskilling initiative is Udacity. 
So we're working in country with Udacity to do some digital upskilling because we've realized that that's a really high market need. They're a global software education tech platform. Or? They are. Um, they they do training, okay. right? So in terms of, but it's online. It's all online, and we created it so there's a little bit more um, support systems throughout. And so, for example, if you are a young Emirati right now who's on probation, right? You've just graduated, you're on probation, you're like, well, I, am I going to make it through this? Um, you could go and get this foundational digital kind of literacy, and then you could say, wow, I can see that this, that my boss really wants me to do a lot of data visualization pieces, and I'm not really great at it. Well, we happen to have a nano degree in data visualization, Right, and so you can actually go and do that and become really, really good at it because it's all practical-based learning. So you actually have to practice it online. Somebody gives you feedback. You get good at it while you're still working. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just talk a little bit about AUB. So roughly, what are the sort of fees for a young person in Lebanon to go through AUB in engineering? I'd have to. I'd have to look at that. You're. But it's not. It's like not. Quiz. It's not. It's not for everyone. And it's it, because yeah, because there's other universities in Lebanon that are sort of accessible, but not the higher t quality of education. Therefore, they need some support. And what's the normal uh, way of you know, if I'm a, looking for a scholarship in a university, do I apply via the university or do I go through your foundation? So what would happen? Well, first, that scholarship program, um, we're no longer continuing with it because we've moved on to the systems model. So we so we support the universities to lower the barriers. Um, but in general, what um, students will do is they go to the university and there's a the admissions site and then there's support sites with the admissions that show you everything that is attached and that's how you could a student could learn about others, other uh, scholarships. And so is that something, because obviously it's a big region and, uh, you know, I'll talk a little bit about the the Emirati side of things as well, but, you know, education is, is a big, broad topic and what you described is even beyond that with entrepreneurship and other things. So, um, you know, you mentioned sort of going from 1,200 to more thousands and 92,000, but there's even more people within that category. Oh, yeah. So how do you, how are you, are you selective or how do you pick them? So what we do is we, we look at um, where are the big gaps? Where, what are the, the friction points that are, that are stopping um, individuals from kind of getting out of, especially in this region, pockets of poverty, right? And so we have an amazing uh, programs team and we have a knowledge and innovation unit who does that research and then comes back and says, so here are the big gaps. And they're, they're gaps that everybody knows, right? We have a huge unemployment rate in the region. We have a youth bulge. Um, we do have uh, an issue with digital literacy in the region. Um, we also know that young people are feeling very unprepared for the future in terms of the tech Piece, but also in terms of the sustainability jobs that are coming down the pipeline. Um, I think I read a statistic that said 85% uh, of the jobs in 2030 won't exist. Uh, don't exist right now, excuse me. So, you know, we're trying to prepare these young people for a green job future, a tech job future. And 
the half-life of any new skill is anywhere between four and five years. So it's got to be this continuous learning. And so what we do is we find uh, programs that fill those pockets and that are doing a good job. And then we ask them, okay, you're doing a good job, but what about this population? We will support you in reaching this population. And what happens when you do that is other entities come on board with you. So for example, um, the Islamic Development Bank is a very large partner of ours now um, because they, they realize that we have the same value set. We want young people to do well so that they can have their own income, which helps the economy of the entire country. So that's kind of how we, we decide there's, um, there are other models that we use, but that's the primary model. We do our research, we do a lot of vetting, and then we co-create the programs with all of the stakeholders who are involved, including the young people who are going to be participating in our programs. There are, um, there's a really good Arab youth survey that shows, <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with it, but, and you know, there's many insights from that. I think uh, BCW do it every year, but one of the common themes is young people from less economically advanced countries in the region often want to move to the UAE and more prosperous economies. Does that mean that you end up focusing on places like Lebanon and other places? Is it, are they the gaps, are they the bigger pockets or is it widespread? So in terms of, um, I mean, Lebanon's certainly in, in crisis, there's no doubt, and the youth are suffering. But you, you see that in other places as well. What I think is happening in terms of, of people wanting to come to the UAE is that they, they just think, okay, well, I'll go there and it'll be okay, I'll get a job. Right? The UAE is creating jobs and they're growing, but they're doing this because they've invested in a knowledge economy. They definitely have um, natural resources, I, I won't negate that, but the ability to use those and the ability to move into kind of green energy down the, down the road or technology requires a particular knowledge uh, talent pool. And they are attracting that and they are investing in, in creating that. I'll give you an example. Yesterday I was at the, um, uh, with the SDG Council and um, SDG 11, which I believe is um, one of the pieces that they're really interested in is smart cities and smart Dubai was there. Um, and they've gone paperless. Right? They've made us all go paperless. We all know this because you know our driver's licenses are now on our phone, everything's on our phone. Um, well, you can't do that unless you have the digital infrastructure, but also you have people who have the digital literacy to understand how to get it done. And so to be able to make sure that everybody is able to not only use it, but create the next level, the next generation of how this is going to work from the back end to the user interface, hmm. right? And so let's go back to that tech up program I was talking about that Udacity offers, the nano degree that we're, we're providing, um, UX design is one of those pieces because it's in such high demand. And what's exciting about kind of that particular piece is that you can actually stay in your community and still contribute to, be it the UAE economy, French economy, it's, it's a global piece because you can actually work remotely with this. And so that's the other reason I was really excited about these kind of programs is because we have participants who have graduated from our programs in Jordan, one of the poverty pockets of Jordan, unfortunately. But I'm thinking of this one particular lady, she now has a contract with the US. 
So she is okay. now doing extremely well, and she's never had to leave her community. She's now a role model, hmm. and she's contributing to the community. And so the entire community is lifted. Yeah, amazing. So I think that was the point I was getting at in terms of, uh, you know, some of, uh, outside of the foundation, there might be country-led or government-led initiatives which uh, creates job opportunities and the education part supports that and uh, it enhances the economy. But that works at a country level. But with, with the foundation, if you're looking across the region, you know, the, the education that you're providing, are you doing it for the benefit of Jordan, for Lebanon, for Egypt, for Saudi? Are you doing it so people can be skilled to come to Dubai to get jobs? Oh, I see. I know I understand your question better now. Um, you know, when we changed the model in 2020, I'm, I think I need to explain this model as well. When the foundation was created, they don't look at, okay, Dubai, then the UAE, and then the region. They look at it in a very holistic way of how can we do the most good for our neighbors and for our uh, more global neighbors as well. So the way we do things now is we incubate in the UAE in particular. We are based in Dubai, and so we have a lot of support systems around that. So when I say we incubate, one of the things, so in my past life, I was an evaluator in education development sector. And so I was the person that, for example, the UK government would send in uh, or the donor would send in to see if the investment was actually giving them the returns that they wanted. And I can tell you there was a lot of waste. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of things didn't go right. And part of that was because they didn't have all of the stakeholders involved. In the UAE, um, we can do that, right? The, so for example, the consortium has the universities on board, we have the private sector on board, and we have the government um, working as well because we follow that vision. And so what we're doing is we're incubating models here. So one of our models is kind of that upskilling to job in the private sector model, and what is needed to kind of fix that problem. Everybody has galvanized around the table and said, okay, here's a model that works, and it's been very successful. And so now that entire model is being exported to, right now it's, um, we're looking at maybe Jordan, Tunisia, and Lebanon, because those are kind of high needs places, where other entities have said, we really like this result, could we bring it here? Mm. And so the idea is, yes, absolutely, we'll help you bring it, but you need skin in the game to actually care enough about those youth and the economic development to be able to also do it. So that's kind of the model that we're using. It's not very different than any other corporate model where you're trying to <laughs> export, um, but rather than trying to make money off of it, we're trying to make it, it, talent. Yeah, <laughs> you're trying to get results out of it and measure it in, in that way. Yeah. Because you know, if we think of supports in terms of education, you know. Uh, it's all as you said waste but it's not always successful some people might abuse it some people might in, unintentionally just not complete the course or get the best out of it or or so and so you, you obviously think through that from past experience but uh, is that a way of how you had the system that you've come up with it's sort of it thinks through that well how do we measure this and you know, if we're working with Udacity, what are the, some of the pain points and the, and the positive solutions that they put in place to make sure the course is completed? And um, are there any sort of things that you can share on that? How do you, once you sort of provide the support, how do you sort of handhold in a way to make sure it works? So I love that you call it handholding. 
Um, I think sometimes our partners don't look at it as hand-holding so much as monitoring. <laughs> <laughs> but we do try and do it in a very uh, authentic way where we're both looking at, here's a problem, you haven't met the KPI that has been put in the agreement from Go, which is a little bit different than most um, I guess, uh, NGOs, because what they do is they say, okay, well, you've trained this many people, that's it, that's your deliverable, the training. Well, we're not really looking at just the training, we're looking at training to a job. So it's not about, did you get trained, it's did you get an interview, did you get a promotion? So we actually help them with that piece as well. So because we look at the entire, the entire kind of line uh, continuum, we then reverse engineer it and we're like, okay, we're not getting to point C, What's happening at point B? Why, why don't we have this conversion rate to graduations? Why don't we have the conversion rate to jobs? Um, and we sit with our partners and they, they tell us. And the reason we can do that is because in the agreement, we all agree on what that should look like all the way through. And if it's not happening, we sit and we're like, okay, it's not happening. What are we going to do about it? what other support systems are needed. And I think because we have over 38 partners, we've gotten good at it. Um, at you know understanding that we may be seen as a donor, but we are a partner in this with them. And sometimes that has meant, you know, very quickly being able to say, we can see the problem, we've seen this before, here's a solution. Sometimes that's go back and fix it this is on, on you. And sometimes it's neither of us understand this because nobody's tried it this way before. Let's do focus group with the participants and let them tell us what's going on and see if we can fix it. And again, I don't think that that's different than any other corporate model that's trying to create a solution, right? Mm. The, so you go back to your client, but in our case, it's a participant and say, why are you not using this? You know, why are you not coming to this? I'll give you an example in Lebanon, a really quick one. Um, so we have two funds and the Refugee Education Fund is one of them um, that we administer for His Excellency Abdelaziz al -Hurair. And so we were not getting the women in one of our technical colleges to come in for the evening classes. And they wanted evening classes because they, they had caregiving duty during the day or they had jobs. And we're like, well, okay, now we've done everything you asked. Why aren't you coming? And it just turned out they felt unsafe because the lights were off at night in the entire institution. So what we had to do is just light the way, literally light the way, mm. right? And suddenly they felt safe because their security was there. And suddenly we had women in the program again. And so Amazing. sometimes it's little, but you have to understand the context to fix it. Okay. And Dr. Sonia, so we'll talk a little bit about broader uh, foundations and, and other uh, things that are happening in the region. But uh, with, with, a, with a, a solution like that or with a structure like that, um, I'm beginning to paint a picture of what the makeup of your team. And uh, are they more on this sort of not in the right term, but on the after sales and the managing the program, because you don't, like other foundations, you might necessarily need to raise funds, you might necessarily need to be out there much. So uh, like what, what is the size of the team and the foundation and what are the skills that they have? So we have around roughly 30 people at any given time. Um, and I have the people in operations. Um, so you're, I think any, any organization has this, you know, you've got your accountant, your finance people, you know, we get a lot of um, group support from the El Herrera Investment Group who help us and um, share their policies with us and, and support us that way so that we don't have to kind of re, 
invent those wheels, and I'm very grateful for that, um, legal support as well. Um, and so everything we do sits on top of a foundation, you know, even the, the digital infrastructure so that all of our data is secured and we can all be using, you know, the, the shared folders and all of those pieces that we have the ops team like anybody else. Um, then you've got our knowledge and innovation unit that um, is involved throughout. So they would be doing the research to find where are the hurt points. They would also be doing kind of that, the monitoring and evaluation of all of the pieces that we're doing, whether we have a partner who's actually delivering the program, which is what we mostly do. We don't deliver ourselves, um, but we need to work closely with them because we want particular outcomes. We can't ask them to do it the way everybody else has been doing it all the time because we don't like the results that we've been seeing from everybody. So you have to do something different, mm. which means you've got to kind of look at it closely. And then when we see success or even lessons learned, that team also shares out that knowledge. So we're very um, particular about making sure that we share what we learn so other people can not make our mistakes and they can also you know, innovate on their own with, with these protocols or toolkits, which we share very, very openly. Um, and then the biggest team, of course, is our programs and partnerships team, because that's the meat of it. Um, that's where you find the right, um, in the corporate world, to be your vendors. For us, they're truly our partners, because we co-create new pieces with them. Um, that's who gets in touch with our participants and makes sure that they're happy, you know, and that it is fulfilling a need. and looks at all of our stakeholders and is very engaged with all of our stakeholders. That team of professionals, I think, is the one that, and the Knowledge Innovation Unit is the one that you see the most out there. Um, so I, those are, those individuals all are absolutely fabulous at their job, came in with experience, and then, of course, grew through this innovative way that we're doing things. Brilliant. And do those partners come to you? Are, are those partners seeking support and foundations, or do you seek at them as well? So it's really interesting, because um, when, you know, when we uh, started, of course, nobody knew about us, so we had to seek them out. Um, and now the brand has become trusted. And that has a lot to do with the success that we've had and the fact that we share our knowledge and our innovations and the toolkits are out there and we want, and you know, um, the chairman has said this several times, if you want to know how we're doing it, if you, if you want to sh copy us, copy us, right? Our intellectual property is out, is out there. We want people to do well um, in their contexts. And so I think that because of that kind of openness and because we co-create with others, that word has gotten out over time. Um, it also you know, helps to have 90,000 individuals who represent the benefits of, <laughs> of being a part of the programs. And so we are now in a point where we're finally receiving more requests than seeking out, Okay. Um, which has been a nice turning point that has happened in the last couple of years. And these requests come from the type of partners that you work with, or would they be individuals or also? They would be um, government officials who come to us and say, um, listen, you're doing this, we're, we've got this in the pipeline, do you want to do it together? Do you want to help us? And the answer is always yes, <laughs> if it fits within our scope, absolutely, We're, we love um, supporting the vision of, of the UAE government in particular because they're 
you know, in terms of like SDG four, the Sustainable Development Goal four, um, in the indices, they're number one in the world on a few of them, and so we want to promote that globally. Mm. Um, we get requests from universities. We get requests from um, corporate sector now who come to us and say, um, you know, I need to hire young talent. This is my hurt point. Um, for example, right now it's in the pipeline. It will be announced soon. We will be supporting a cybersecurity training to work program because so much of the private sector has said we can't find cybersecurity people, people yeah. right? And so our answer is great. But if we train them, you hire them, and then we go out and go through our networks and our partners and say, okay, let's find people who are hurting to find jobs and with just a bit of training could actually land this great job. And that's our, our population that we're after. Fascinating. And when you work with uh, Emirati youth, what are the sort of skills that you're looking? Is it aligned with some of those future goals of the country and that side of things? So Emirati youth, um, so first of all, they're super diverse. You know, like any other group of youth, they're, di they're a diverse group. You've got some who are absolutely like, I got this, let's go. And you've got some that are like, I'm so lost, um, and please don't come and talk to me because I'm that lost, mm. right? And you've got the entire spectrum, which is exactly how it was in Canada when I worked in Canada. Um, so I think that I don't like painting every like one broad brushstroke, but I will say that um, they are um, super enthusiastic, there is often, often, especially with the females that we work with, a shyness um, that it, it's, it's, it goes with their humility, I think. Um, and it's about supporting them in finding their voice and how to use it appropriately in the private sector culture, because that was our goal in, and it is our goal. And so we have particular programs that have actually been very effective in supporting this. Um, I can think of one with um, CNN as our partner. And so they've trained, um, they're in the process of training 300 young Emiratis, uh, male and female, um, on how to analyze data, do all the journalistic pieces, Amazing. but do it for how to tell your story. So that when you go into an interview, you can tell your story in a way that they're going to want you. Um, and afterwards, they're going to want you because you'll be telling the story of the organization to mm. others. And so that has um, allowed these young people to really just kind of rise up. And, and they have all the talent, but now they have an ability to share it uh, in a great style. Um, so I think those are kind of the pieces, but there's also the technical skills, like I said, the cybersecurity, the UX design, agile development that we're, we're focused on. But it really is about just that boost because in this country, there's a lot of support for higher education already for Emiratis. Mm -hmm. So it's about work integrated learning. It's not about um, just the technical skill. Hmm. Brilliant, interesting. Uh, that gave me a good idea, the CNN one. <laughs> but yeah, so talk a little bit about foundations in general because uh, it was nice how you described how the foundation came about at the start. And, you know, people won't be familiar with many NGOs. There's obviously, uh, you know, different regulation here and there's some really well-established ones like Dubai Cares. But how does, how does one go about the sort of licensing and the regulation of a foundation? Sure. Um, well, 
in our case and, and that of um, many, um, they go and register as a foundation and DIFC has it. So okay. what, what the government here has done, which is absolutely fantastic, is they've, they've regulated it so that you can just register. And in, in this country, what's really interesting, um, it, which I think is actually in, in, in many countries, but not always very, um, not very common in the Middle East, is that... Uh, they have created the space where we can be accountable for the funds in a very responsible way. So I get audited all the time and, and Deloitte or, or AUI or one of the auditing companies does it. Um, and so that keeps us very honest. But also um, what they wanted to do and one of the reasons high regulation is, is often wanted in this sector um, is because, especially for cross-border payments um, or cross-border fund transfers, in this region there's a lot of concerns about where those funds are going to go. Um, and they want to keep the security and they want to protect their youth. And so that's why due diligence is so incredibly important and transparency is so incredibly important. And I think that that's the piece um, regionally and globally where we are really struggling as a sector to figure this out. Um, so that we can do those cross-border transfers without losing such a high percentage to operational costs so that the lion's share can go to the programs and the participants on the ground, which is what we've figured out how to do. And does it help that you're associated with, uh, with an ongoing concern with the business? Does that help the compliance and everything? I think it helps us enormously um, that the, uh, the Abdullah El Hurair family um, has, my board members are family members. My chairman is Abdulaziz El Hurair, His Excellency, who has his own fund. And what's nice about that is anytime I come into a hiccup of, I'm not sure how to do this, it's very much, do you want to talk to somebody at Meshrek? Okay, call somebody at Meshrek. <laughs> like anybody you want at Meshrek, anybody you want at Masafi, anybody you want at AGI. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, this ICT thing is, is, okay, call the head of ICT. Who do you need? So I have almost like this massive consultancy piece behind me that's ready to sit down with me, you know, from the head of treasury to the head of comms, anybody to say, listen, this is, this is what you could do. This is how the market is. This is. And so that, on an operational level, gives me a support system that is, you know, just really reassuring in a lot of ways. Mm. So I, I know I can, I can get that at any time, and I use it, and some people um, get WhatsApp messages at 8 p.m. at night. I'm like, <laughs> listen, can we talk? And that's, um, I think that that's extremely helpful, and I don't know that, you know, a small foundation would have that, um, but I think it's important to open up your doors, and, and maybe I can talk to all the private sector entities to say, you know, foundations and small NGOs may not need um, your funds as much as your knowledge sometimes. And so you can give through in-kind giving of that sort, and it can make an enormous difference to them. How, you know, sort of, thank you, and for sort of six, seven years in, uh, eight, seven, eight years in, uh, <laughs> um, how much, is this still 100% funded by the Algarheir family? And, Absolutely. And will it, is that continue? And then, yeah. and, you know, Obviously, philanthropy and some, is something that successful business people do. Uh, but how do they manage that, or you know, how yeah. how can you continue to commit, given how you know volatile the business world can be? How can you continue to sort of support at that level, given yeah. the kind of yeah? And I think that that's the magic of what they did. 
Um, so Abdullah al-Hurair created a system where one third of his wealth is dedicated to the foundation in perpetuity. Oh, wow. So it's done. It's legally done. It's and so um, we have one benefactor and one benefactor alone, um, and. His uh, son is the chairman, and um, we have other sons who are on our board, and they assure that all of that is very smoothly done, that we feel supported. I don't have a one-year plan, actually. At this point, I've had a three-year plan approved with budget, with programs. So um, they look at us as almost a specialized business unit that's independent, where funds flow in, but no funds flow back out. <laughs> um, and it really is um, the gracious generosity of Abdullah al-Hurair, um, who decided that his legacy would be more than his businesses. Um, and the his sons who, who are now part of it and assure that that vision lives operationally. And I think that that makes a huge difference because, as you said before, I don't fundraise, um, and that is a, a very big load off of my OPEX. But it's also a huge load off of the thinking and the innovation units who know that their job is to go out and help and serve, and that the funds are coming. So if they come up with it, it's it's getting approved. It's the funds are there for them to achieve. That said, I still have KPIs that I need to meet, and it's not about um, the number of people we help. It's making sure we help them in a particular way. So I always use this as an example. We could definitely help, you know, I don't know, 500,000 uh, people tomorrow. I could buy lollipops and just give them out and say, look, I helped. I made somebody happy for a minute. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is something much deeper that's supposed to help them in their path so that we are giving them something that they can then self-sustain. And that's the support that they want to see. So I have to show that follow-up, and that's my KPI. Did they get um, Did they get something that helped them? Yeah. And Sonia, Dr. Sonia, you also mentioned before about refugees and education. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Like, how do, in general, simple, silly question maybe, how do refugees get educated? So a lot of them don't, and that's the issue. Um, so, like I said, I, I, so I have two funds that, that I administer. One is the foundation, but the other one is um, His Excellency Abdelaziz Alvarez Refugee Education Fund. And it's completely separate, and he funds that personally. And so we have um, a run of, of grant cycles that we do, and we do most of our work in Jordan and Lebanon because they have a very heavy load of um, refugees, and they have a heavy load on their system. So... What we noticed is we have um, a pipeline in the secondary that was collapsing. So if you're a refugee in um, these, this region, you're likely not going to be going to secondary. And so, and, and I mean like unlikely as an under 10% chance. So secondary education, so after sort of so 16, 17 or after 10, after, 12? After 10, 12. Okay. You're not, you're not graduating. You're, you're not making it. You've had too many gaps in the system that you can't. So boosting that and getting them through secondary and then getting them to a tech, or, or if you've already lost that opportunity, getting them into technical vocational so that they can have a job that's honorable and that they can make a decent living out of, that's where we focus our energy on because... Again, it, it was about not educating, just, you know, we don't need them to just, you know, I don't know, 
know their geography and their sciences. We need them to have that basic literacy and and digital literacy um, and actually being able to read and write and do math so that they can learn a skill and actually use it for a job. And so that's where we do that. But the refugee education um, sector, I, I guess that, that field suffered so much, um, especially with the pandemic, especially with the shifting sands of where um, big donors give their money. Um, so this region um, has suffered and education will be put under health. You know, so first we need to take care of health and nutrition, and then we'll take care of education. Well, well, because of the pandemic, health simply wasn't being taken care of. So I understand the redistribution of funds, but without education, we can't grow and we can't move forward. So we're having a little bit of a crisis in the sector. Wow. Uh, inspiring, though, uh, positively. But how do, how do you go about implementing that? Uh, you know, we, we see some stories in the media. We see individual successful ref refugees making it, and we see uh, people traveling to refugee camps and seeing, you know, some, we see schools and we see things like that. But what, what's it like sort of strategically looking at the problem? So that's why we picked what we picked, secondary and tertiary and, and VOCAD. Mm. Um, it was very much, um, we, we can't just educate for that sake. We have to look at what the markets are need and what, where refugees are allowed to work because that's also a very big limitation. So there was no point in us um, offering training for a, a sector where they wouldn't be allowed to work because of the regulatory frameworks there. So we, one of them in Jordan, a great example is um, they had gone hybrid with their vehicles in Jordan and they didn't have the the mechanic, the me mechanician, I don't know. <laughs> You say that the the mechanism or the, no the the people who fix the cars mechanics yeah <laughs> thank you mechanics um, who understood how to how to deal with an electric motor as opposed to like the old motors mm. and so they had this this sudden issue um, and we were able to partner with uh, Luminous College there Luminous Technical University to um, train these refugees in that. And suddenly there's this one young man in Jordan who we interviewed before and he was just like, you know, what bothers me most, and this is what's heartbreaking, is they don't want to be refugees. They don't want to be dependent. They want, like all of us, to be, you know, contributors. And he would say um, in his interview, he goes, you know, what really hurts is that they call me the refugee. I'm not even a name. I'm just the refugee in this community. It's not who I am. I'm more than that. And then he goes through our program, and we interview him again, because, again, we do a lot of evaluation and monitoring work. And he's being interviewed, and he's just glowing. And he's saying, um, they call me kind of the EV guy, because <laughs> now I'm the guy who they come to because they can't fix their cars. And now nobody has ever called me the refugee since. Right? So it's about identity. It's more than that. So he felt so good. And he's making a change, a contribution, and he's self-sufficient. It's a good story. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was great. But so, and you know, looking to the future, uh, what are the what's on the horizon? What are your plans? Oh, a lot. <laughs> so much. Um, I think that we have built some really great models in the UAE. We have um, a few of our programs looking at, you know, how are we going to 
um, bridge that gap for work integrated learning and for getting them to, to the job sector, the private job sector. We have hiring partners now who happen to be multinationals, a lot of them, and so they're everywhere in the region as well, who are eager to have us um, export those models. I think in the next couple of years, that will be a lot of our focus is exporting the good models with kind of the, this is the UAE model. And um, we have a lot of actors who, international donor actors who want that to happen. So we're right now in uh, negotiating how that can work and who are the stakeholders in the, in the region. Um, here, I think we're gonna do a lot more in terms of university and career advising because what we've heard from the ground is you guys do great work, but it's too late. I need you to work closer with secondary students. And so we're looking at what we can do there. Interesting. And what are the other gaps that you haven't, you know, the big areas that you haven't yet tackled? Or is there a particular pocket that you'd like to? I mean, I'd love to see early childhood education tackled. I don't know if that's in our basket and in our scope, but um, we have so much research now showing what early childhood, um, good early childhood can do, not only in terms of creating jobs, because you have to create early childhood educators and then there's a whole OPEX team for that, but also um, in terms of the returns, the long-term returns on investment for an econ economy. I think it's, it's seven or nine dollars um, return on investment for every dollar that okay. you, you invest or something like that for early childhood. So it's quite high on a, on a massive scale. Amazing. And a little bit about entrepreneurship. So do you have any partner that you focus with on that? And I was it thought uh, crossed my mind when you mentioned sort of advising uh, secondary students before they go to university. You know, what, because where, where does entrepreneurship come in? Because if it's not really part of the secondary school education curriculum. Is it the kids role, should they initiate it? Should the school initiate it? Should the parents initiate it? At what point can you look at this as a, as a section, as a sector? So I, I have a particular, and I'm not sure it's a popular viewpoint, but it's my viewpoint. <laughs> um, I think that we need to, entrepreneurship is, is really about looking at things differently and seeing the empty spaces as potential opportunities rather than just gaps. That's a habit of minds. And so I think it needs to be embedded in all the curriculum, right? So that's one piece of it. How do we ask critical questions and come up with critical solutions with others, right? And which is another piece of it. And then in terms of opportunities to create, if we were to go into a more project-based models um, versus kind of didactic teaching, which we're seeing a lot of um, because we're in Dubai and they happen to have excellent schools, so we see a lot of this, um, that we could actually start to create that entrepreneurship mindset very early on. And then making sure those opportunities are, are opening up. And we see that. In the past, um, as the foundation, we did, I think it was two years ago, we brought in um, MIT to do the leadership boot camp, and we had a huge entrepreneurship piece there where we had um, 20 teams compete <laughs> for, and this is pre-expo, so they, they actually would showcase an expo, the, the winning teams would showcase there because they would have gotten incubated. We are thinking of actually doing that again, but this time looking at how that can feed in with sustainability and green um, solutions rather than just as, as in general. And so, um, that's definitely on the horizon, but with regards to kind of the green um, solutions. 
Amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, for that. You've shared a lot today. I think a lot of our listeners will have found it inspiring. I certainly have. So appreciate uh, you sharing the story and we'll follow the Algarve Foundation in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. I think that was great. I found that inspiring, not necessarily in the category of uh, a billionaire, but it, I think it gives everyone uh, inspiration of how foundations are set up and how, uh, you know, altruistically to be able to give back and philanthropy and see that, uh, you know, hopefully that this will lead to a lot more of these type of foundations in the region, as well as the good work that's already taken place. So thank you uh, to Dr. Sonia for sharing that story and also to our team here at Augustus Media who put the show together. Uh, so uh, Ali Khalil, who's always uh, behind the decks, uh, the audio, the video, and Shahir Al-Kindi is a producer who manages the guests in the distribution, the team at Love in Dubai and Smashy TV, who distributed. As always, it's available across podcast applications. Uh, we go out every week live on Smashy.tv at 11 a.m. on Friday mornings. The podcast is usually distributed by about 2 or 3 p.m. And there's an article in Love in Dubai on uh, Saturday afternoon. Uh, we'll be back next week and all summer with another episode. Uh, so do stay in touch when you're on the beach in Italy or the south of France or in further afield. Uh, please listen to Dubai Works and let us know your feedback. Thank you. <laughs>